All right. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining our podcast here. Uh, this is our first episode. So my name's Sean. I'm going to give you a little background on myself, and then we'll kick it over to Greg, and he'll give a little background on himself, and then we'll get going with the show for everybody. So again, my name's Sean, 34 years old, which is kind of a crazy number to think about. Um, I live in Colorado, and I focus mostly on living a good life that really focuses around stocks and sports and being a good parent to my kids. Uh, Greg, on the other hand here, is my, not on the other hand, but <laughs> Greg is my friend since college. And we decided to put this podcast together because Greg is really smart and I asked some really interesting questions and we think it's a good place for people to start learning maybe one or two things from Greg and maybe laughing at me along the way. So, all right, Greg, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Good morning, everyone. My name's Greg. I am also 34. As Sean said, we met in college at a dorm. So we were both freshmen. Uh, I live in New York City. Uh, I hail from the Bronx. Um, uh, my, my last 15 years of life have been spent in the world of finance. So I've got some, some fun insights, I think, uh, into how, you know, stocks work, but Sean and I, uh, definitely, uh, connected on things like sports and, and normal things, you know, uh, uh, ro romantic relationships, success, you know, normal, normal things that, uh, guys talk about. So we're going to kind of just record how we usually talk and, throw some interesting stock and sport ideas at everyone and, and hopefully uh, hopefully they're interesting. Yeah. So yeah. Well, why don't we start at the beginning, Greg, because I think you and I met in a pretty interesting way, which is we were in the progressive dorm before progress and progressiveness was even a real thing. And this is saying something when you go to the University of Colorado at Boulder. Yeah. Yeah. So both, so we're both from, I'm originally from Colorado. I moved here. Sean's, Sean's a Colorado native still is. And so we both went to the University of Colorado. We were at, we were, we were, I, I had signed up for the business dorm. I don't know what you signed up, but I think we were both late entrants, if I recall. Yeah, I think both, what happened is neither you or I actually wanted to go to Boulder <laughs> and it was our fallback school. And so I, I, my reasoning for not going or for going to Boulder was, um, I couldn't make the finances to go out of state line up correctly. So then I just jumped at going to Boulder because it, it worked out financially. Yeah. I, uh, I basically applied to a bunch of really good schools and I didn't get into any of them except for I got deferred admittance to one and I had applied to see you because that's what everybody does in the state of Colorado. And so that was basically the only school that accepted me for, for admission. So um, I did get, I did have a nice uh, financial package from them. Uh, if you don't know, the state of Colorado is like annoyingly expensive for college because, or at least it used to be. It still the state, is. <laughs> state was bankrupt or is, or won't spend any money on that. They're not bankrupt yeah. anymore, obviously with, with the marijuana loss, but uh education was always expensive. So that was always, that was a nice little, that was a nice little spot for us. So, so we're both late entrants into the university of Colorado. Neither of us candidly, I think wanted to be there. And I think that was a bonding thing. So, so we lived in the progress, as Sean said, in the progressive dorm. What did that mean? Well, I don't think any of us knew when we first showed up. Um, 
what it meant was uh, that uh, things like LGBTQ, which which I don't, I think the Q was like added that year. Yeah, it was like, a new entrance. It, yeah, <laughs> shows how that shows but, our age right there. <laughs> yeah, and there was no plus or whatever else has been added on. It was LBGT, I think, was the was was the was the thing, and. Um, and, uh, you know, shared bathrooms, shared showers, like gender neutral stuff. Um, it, was, it was a rather intense initial experience for a bunch of people who didn't know each other. And I lived on one end of, a, of basically an L-shaped floor. And Sean, like I was the first dorm. And Sean was the last dorm on the other end of the L-shaped dorm. Do you remember how we actually met? Like, was it you were just going, I think you were more social butterfly. You were like, I went know. around and knocked on literally everyone's door to introduce myself as uh, the outdoor outgoing person, purely in a um, kind of survey mode to figure out exactly who was checking the LBD, LGBTQ box and who was it. Because it turned out very quickly that the hetero male population in the dorm was extremely low. <laughs> And so uh, on this floor, yes, I mean, I think there were, I don't want to say there were four of us, but out of, out of 30, no more than 10, <laughs> but the, yeah, out of, out of 30 dudes, there were, you're probably right. No more than 10. So, and, and not that there was not that there was anything, you know, we, I mean, again, we were comfortable with it. We just, uh, uh, you know, you just wanted to get to know people. They had us fill out. Um, I don't know if you remember this, they had us fill out all kinds of forms and stuff so that we'd be we'd be understanding of, of where everyone was at. Yeah, it so. was, a, it was fascinating, but I remember coming into your room and you were playing, I think it was NCAA 2005. And that, that is how right. we bonded because, well, both of us love to play football video games. <laughs> and yeah, so college, as soon as you find games. someone that you can play video games with, you have an instant bond. Yeah, well, that, that was also part of it too this dorm because you know because you were you were in, it was not stereotypical uh it wasn't quite sure who was into what right so so here we are two heterosexual males also interested in sports um you know i think we were we were the ones who would go to i mean college football was big time i'm pretty sure you me and our other friend uh were the only ones that would go to the games Everyone else yep. was just kind of like, yeah, whatever. We don't care. And we were awful that year. I mean, we were really terrible our freshman do you, year. Do you remember my no shave till we win challenge? And yeah. I think I went 10 weeks before I shaved and looked like a horrible child molester. Like it was, yeah. it was a rough stretch. It was, and that, no, we, that was we with Cody Hawkins parade all American, never having lost a football game coming in to play for his dad. Like, we're going to go, we're going to start this season off. Right. We're going to start this new era off. Right. And we lay an egg against Montana state, Montana state. And then, so, so th that was the same year that, that Michigan, who's your other school where you wanted to go lost to Appalachian state. Do you remember that? I they do. were ranked number two. And so we, Sean's already upset going into the Montana state game, uh, which means we had been drinking and, uh, and uh, and then we lose that game. Oh, my God. People were so mad. And it was a loss, like a loss that you don't expect because 
it could have been you would have expected a high scoring game or you know some kind of shootout it was 19 to 10 which uh-huh. means the division 1 national championship winning university of colorado buffaloes could only score one touchdown and one field goal against one double a montana state <laughs> do you remember who our kicker was too the only number 99 kicker in the history of NCAA football video games, Mason Crosby. So dudes kicking 60 yard field goals in the thin air. Plus we get, we can't get across midfield for him to try. It was, it was brutal. We also, we also lost in overtime to Baylor. Now Baylor's a much better school now, but at the time Baylor had been, was the laughing stock of the big 12. That's right. You could always beat count on that being a win. And I think we lost in overtime, if I remember correctly. Yep. Yep. And then we reeled off. It it was great. We went, we lost to Montana State. Then we go to CSU and lose. Then we go to Arizona State and lose. Georgia, Missouri, Baylor in overtime. We finally beat, this one is the crazy one, which is Texas Tech. Texas Tech. Who had two, like it was, they had like Michael Crabtree and I don't remember. Graham they, Harrell they had great wide quor- receivers. Yeah, Graham Harrell is the quarterback, I think. Graham Harrell was the quarterback. They had that 6'8 wide receiver. I don't know if he actually was good in the NFL, but. This is Mike Leach uh, was the coach. Like it was just an unbelievable kind of upset for us with 30 to 6. And then we proceeded to lose every game until we played Iowa State's. And we beat them 33-16. Wow, that's an interesting one to think about is the fortunes of Iowa State versus the University of Colorado. Iowa State is like a top 15 program now. And Colorado yeah. is still a bottom-feeding, <laughs> horrible football program. Well, this is also – this is 2006-2007. And so, it's so we're still Big 12. Power 5 shakeup, right? So it was, it was still the, like the, what I consider to be the real Big 12 when we had Nebraska and Colorado in the north. And and uh, and Missouri, and uh, and then you had all the Oklahoma and Texas schools in the South, not TCU, not um, God, I don't even know. Texas A and M is still there. Um, so it was like it was an act. To, to, it was it was the it was what we grew up with, and it's honestly in my mind, whatever, still makes sense. I mean, Colorado being in the Pac-12, that still still and I cannot figure that out. People try and push the Pac-12 rivalry, you know, with with Utah, the new border war. And I'm just like, no, that's not quite the same thing. Like Nebraska CU is a special type of rivalry, at least for CU fans. Nebraska fans love to say it's not a rivalry to them, but uh, just to throw the barbs out to the Huskers real quick, we are two and zero in the last two games that we played then during the frost seasons. So, well, but, but that's the thing, right? Like Nebraska went to the, went to the big 10 and they suck. So yep. it's like, it's like, guys, just go back to your, go back to the homeland. You'll, this worked. What people don't realize is, is that yes, Utah and Colorado share a border, but there's a freaking mountain range between 90% of the populations, right? So West, Western slope. Okay. That's not where everyone lives. Nebraska, on the other hand, it was, yeah, it's, it's, it's like 10 hour drive between Lincoln and Boulder. Eight but, and a half. But you've got <laughs> you've got this gravity that is Denver. So there's a lot of Nebraska people and fans who live in Colorado. 
In terms Utah, of regional, I, yeah, yeah. It's I mean, a different my, area. My, yeah, my stepdad's a huge Nebraska fan, right? Like, and I'll, and others. I can't think of one person who was a Utah anything fan growing up. Uh, yeah, and it's crazy to me that you have this rivalry being pushed when Denver, and this is going to be controversial, Denver is a Midwestern city. <laughs> As much as it wants to be a Western city, it is very much a Midwestern town. Like we still have the cow hitching places and we still have that, but it's a Midwestern. Yeah, exactly. It's Midwestern. It's more similar to Chicago than it is to Los Angeles. And then you, and then you have Salt Lake, which is its own little fiefdom. Yes. Weird is the word for it. The polite (laughs) term for Salt Lake in the state of Utah is weird. The, the thing is, though, is that Colorado, it, it, I mean, you think of Colorado, you think of the front range, you think of the mountains. Sean's right. Like the, 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 the city, city proper of Denver might be more California than Chicago. The rest of the state is still built on farms, ranches, Oil and gas, traditional blue-collar labor. Like, yeah, it's, it hasn't been until the last really 15 years that Denver has kind of flexed its tech hubness. And that's really a product of kind of the, the mountains being here and Denver turning into a transplant city. Like, yeah. as a native, the only thing I ever hear from people when I tell them where I'm from is, oh, that's a rare thing to find a native from here, to which I reply, well, you're nothing special either, doll. You're from Texas. You're from Chicago. You're from California. You're the ones mucking it up for the rest of us. You know, yeah. you're the idiots on I-70 who have bald tires because you literally believe tires last 60,000 miles. <laughs> and you're wondering why we have traffic on the highways in the wintertime. Like, it's just, it's the city, the transformation has been really cool. And as someone who is, you know, loves to see the city change and, and progress that way, it's been great. Some of the issues that have come up, though, are one traffic. That's because we don't believe in transportation funding here. Literally, if you watch like YouTube videos of people driving on I-70, they're like, do people in Colorado actually pay taxes? Because these are the worst roads we've ever driven on. And these are people from like Utah. <laughs> it's, it's really funny because I, I just recently took a trip out to Colorado and then I had to drive because my whole family's from Western Kansas. And it was really funny. We hit the border coming back and it was like a smooth ride. And then it was like, and it was like, wait, why are these roads? It was literally something someone said. And if you've ever been to Eastern Colorado, Western Kansas, you know, there's not a lot to talk about. So (laughs) it was memorable. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's move on to Greg, give us some insights on the market now, because something really, something interesting has happened, just like interesting things have happened here in Colorado. So I don't know if you saw it, but five hours ago, the yield curve inverted between short and long term. And so a lot of financial people are all saying this is the marker for the start of the recession. This is like the leading lead indicator. Yeah. So, so, so before I get into that, I just want to give a little background. So I've worked in the finance industry for almost 15 years. Uh, I moved to New York to, to work on Wall Street. Uh, I started my career at a small hedge fund that exploded in the late 2000s, um, went from 100 million to over 2 billion in assets while I was there. 
Uh, I'm, I personally, myself, am actually a trained accountant. I have my CPA, but um, never worked at a public accounting firm. And uh, so I've always been close to the markets. Um, when I was at the hedge fund, definitely an evolving, an evolving scenario. We, uh, we, you know, I, we pass trading ideas and, and I learned how to, you know, learn, learn the basics, I would say. But don't forget um, this part, Greg. Don't forget this is this is the most interesting part about your Wall Street journey that I think a lot of people think doesn't happen anymore. But you started as an intern, correct? Correct. I started in the mailroom. I yeah. I like this is like a, first... this is like the Warren Buffett 1980s Peter Lynch style thing where they're like, I literally started in the mailroom or doing whatever, and then they rose to prominence. Like you have a similar trajectory here. My my first job was on a typewriter. And th this is not like in 1985, this is 2006. I had to type 1099s. That was my very first task. And uh, I ended up being, uh, ended up rising to CFO level uh, in a few years. And, uh, and then I left and I went to a small startup that went public last year, tech company. So, you know, did the sort of classic Wall Street thing, did the FinTech thing, uh, and then, and I learned a lot about, you know, small cap, uh, a lot of liquidity type stuff. A lot of stuff we'll probably share, um, over the next, however long this lasts. And then, uh, and then I, I, I ended up going back to help facilitate a transaction at, the, at, at, a, an affiliate of where I used to work, my, where I started my career. And, uh, yeah, so, so I've been, I've been, I've been in and around wall street. I have my you know, series seven and all that other stuff. I've done all the kind of classic things like that. Uh, I've, I've IPO'd a company uh, through it, through a SPAC, which is, we'll, we'll talk about that at some point, I'm sure. So um, I wouldn't say I have a unique perspective on the markets, but I've been close to the, uh, the beating heart of them for, for the better part of 15 years. Also, I went to the University of uh, uh, New York University uh, to the business school and uh, and that place is a uh, that place is intense when it comes to comes to the markets. People are very 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 interested. They pay very close attention. I learned I learned probably more there than anywhere else. Uh, not from the the classes, which were intense and great, but just from the the amount of intelligence uh, from the people who I went to school with. So yeah, and then um, definitely molded my views. Definitely. And then you so and anyways, I have cross-sected with the market a little bit too, because uh, COVID hit 2020, right? And so I came into some money and I started doing some trading, some investing and did very well for myself and was kind of running ideas by you. And then with my background, I'm an environmental professional. So I have a big focus on doing environmental consulting. And so I work for have worked in consulting for uh, 12 years now on the industry side and on state government. And so I have a unique perspective on the market when it comes to the new trendy buzzword in the market, which is ESG. And so I've been able to parlay that knowledge into some, some good returns and uh, some interesting perspectives on, on trading strategy, not really trading strategies, but like a long-term investment strategy that we'll start hearing more about. But that's also you know how you and I kind of came up with the idea for this podcast is Greg knows all the fundamentals and how the market actually works versus me, the upstart who's gotten one, really lucky, two, really lucky because timing never happens twice. And I got lucky on the first time. So I'm not counting on it this time. And I've been trying to educate myself rapidly so that I can be an actual informed 
uh, amateur at this, whereas Greg is the professional. But that's kind of where we want to go with everybody is, you know, having Greg impart some knowledge, having me impart some knowledge and figuring out how to teach people how to make some money in the market responsibly. Yeah, definitely. No, it's funny. Well, Sean, Sean, like he said, he asked, how he started, he asks interesting questions. Uh, Sean peppers me with questions multiple times a day. I have this idea, I have that idea. I'm like, I don't know how you have time for all this. I, 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 uh, I mean, I understand what's going on, but I, I, I don't have that, uh, that um, research uh, bug that you do. You're always constantly finding stuff, which is interesting. Yeah. And I, I like to think that I'm, I like to screen stocks and I like to run down ideas on themes more than stocks now, like looking for themes in the market that we're seeing. Like right now, energy is king. I just saw an article on CNBC that um, year to date, the market is still down 4%. S&P is down 4%. Energy is up 40%. And that kind of jives with my, my investment theory, which is that energy is king, no matter how you get it, traditional or green. The one who makes who has the most energy tends to be the, the dominant economy in the world. And so you can do well investing that way. And, you know, I hate that there's a war in Ukraine, but that's kind of put energy on the forefront of everybody's mind and portfolios are reflecting that that are thinking that way. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think I think one thing that I've learned in my 15 years is history repeats itself, but never in the same ways. Right. So so COVID happened. And in February, we started hearing things, right? There was a conference in Spain where it was a, it was a, a telecommunications conference, like a Vodafone Verizon sort of situation that got canceled in Barcelona in late February. It was the first thing that sort of like went, went intense. And then in my sphere, and the thing that I actually re- recognize the pandemic happened, which is just completely in line with this with this podcast was when Rudy Gobert tested positive, right? That was the moment where I was like, wait, they just they just canceled a basketball game because some dude on the court got this thing. That was that, that was like March 11th or something. I don't know. And then my company shut down March 13th. It was a Friday, I think. I could be could be screwing these dates up a little bit, but um that that to me was the moment. And from January, middle, you know, we started kind of hearing about this, this thing, this, this virus in December. And then all of a sudden in March, uh, everything shuts down. The market goes absolutely bonkers. It, you know, we go from 30,000 in the Dow to 19,000 something, I think. Um, and it was, it was, they call them black swan events. I, you know, I, I, I don't buy that theory, but there are these things that are completely possible and yet unexpected that tend to drive the markets. And Ukraine's another example of that. It was like, I, I heard, a, I heard this, um, I heard this thing on the news, which was just this little t- t- snippet of information that basically like, I don't know, it was December or January. It was, uh, I think it was late December where, where the, um, where the Russian news, news agencies were basically saying like, we're going to invade. And I remember thinking like, there's just no way someone's going to do that. And not then in I 2022, thought, right? Like not a, you're not right. looking at a territorial acquisition in 2022 where we have right. moved past the age of, of territorial expansion. Right. That was my right. thought as well. Yeah. And, 
And, and then all of a sudden it happens all of a sudden, then we're like, well, he's going to wait until after the Olympics. And you're like, wait, what are we talking about right now? Right. And then the markets react. The thing is though, is that as a retail sort of small person investor, you're probably never going to catch the beginnings, right? The market started like oil started creeping up in the, at the end of November. So it started to get priced in even then. And the market started like November 21st or 19th or something. It's the, it's the tip of the market right now. It's, the, it's, it's right now the top. So you started to see these things coming. So coming back to your original question, the, the yield curve inverting is the, is the front of the recession. I, I would argue, depending on your data point, you could make an argument that recession has been since, since August or definitely since November. So I would actually argue in this situation, you've already got indicators that say the, 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 the economy, not the market, excuse me, the economy is in a recession. I, I don't know if, again, recession is kind of a funky word. I think I would argue that we're in more of a plateau. I don't think the market is, I don't think the economy is shrinking. I, I just don't think there's this huge thrust behind it. The, the growth rate isn't there, right? Doesn't mean we're going negative. It just means we're not going very positive. Well, yeah, I mean, the traditional definition of recession is a two-quarter decline in GDP, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you look at, and it's hard to do because we had the massive decline in GDP from COVID, and then we've had gangbuster growth since then. I mean, gangbuster. We're talking growth we haven't seen since like the 50s, since the US became the power in the world. And Mm -hmm. now it's just like, can you classify a recession as going from a 6% growth rate down to a 4% growth rate for two quarters, even though the U.S. before COVID was historically between 1% and 3%. And so right. we're still killing it relative to historical perspectives of growth. And so right. I think I'm with you that the, the term recession for this is it's a pretty funny term because the yield curve inverting is interesting. Uh, as a leading indicator, but you also think about it in terms of the the presence of inflation, Greg. And I think maybe give us some perspective on this inflation because inflation is has been a term that was kicked around in the '80s, really before we were born. We don't really know anything about inflation. Now we're dealing with it uh, as a as a term, and how it's being applied is it really depends on which news network you're you're watching it's a thing but it's either the worst thing that's ever been heard of on fox or it's just a thing that's been heard of on cnn so so i have a funny perspective on inflation um i think that inflation is constantly happening it's just a matter of how you measure it right so for instance uh from 2012 to 2018 i'll call it Housing prices in Queens, New York went like you could buy a 25 by 100 lot with a colonial style house for $250,000 in Astoria in, in, in 2012. In 2017, and I know this because I was trying to buy a house, those things were, if it was in good shape, 700000 And if they were, it was in bad shape, maybe you could find it for $599. And if it was in good shape in a nice neighborhood, it was $900 plus. And they were $250,000 across the board in 2012. So you have this inflation occurring in a neighborhood in New York, which that neighborhood or, or borough, if you will, you know, has 2 million people, which is larger than 
like 30 states or something, right? So it's, and Brooklyn before that. And, and, and so you've got, you know, I mean, New York City has 18 million people, which is bigger than most states. So it's an interesting little moment of like, okay, well, wait, what does that mean? What does inflation mean? And, and that's a house price. Like that's, that's, that's a seven, or that's a 500, call it increase in price, inflationary price, right? So when you go to the, when you go to the grocery store and your eggs go from $2 to $3 or $1.29 to $2.29, you'll never buy enough eggs to match the $500,000 increase if you were wanting to buy a house in Queens. I mean, Denver, to come back to where Sean and I are connected, Denver's no different. I mean, you bought your house in what, 2012? Uh, 2015. 2015. And your house is now worth double, triple? Double, double. And we're in the suburbs. We're not in like a desirable part of the city. Like it's, you know, you move to the suburbs when you want to have kids because- Denver schools are horrible. Well, Colorado schools in general are horrible, but Denver schools are especially bad. And so any rational person, even someone like me who came out of Denver public schools in the city said, I'm not going to take that gamble. And so we moved to the suburbs and yeah, we bought our house for roughly $350,000 and now it's worth $700,000 for no, for no reason other than we've, we've sat on an asset for that long. Right. And it's not even that long because I bet that house from 20, from 2000 to 2015, so 15 years didn't didn't appreciate that much in value. So so anyways, what I'm getting at is is that inflation is incredibly difficult to measure. And if you have something all powerful that moves the needle, like gas prices, it's like oh yeah, inflation's a real thing. I, I don't know. The stock market is another great example. I mean, the stock market is effectively just the increase in the stock market is effectively just inflation, right? So, well, and it's, it, so you, it begs the question though that is it a bad thing, right? So, is the long term inflation of asset prices a bad thing? And it's, I think it's a two pronged question or it's a two pronged answer because you can say yes, it is because you have people who cannot acquire the asset. And so you create a greater division of wealth by doing that. But at the same time, if you are smart and know how to play the game and you acquire an asset, you're talking about the the best way to hedge against the inflation bug is by the yep. by the asset requirement. Yeah, and and also I would also argue that inflation it's all relative in some ways, so it's it's hard to sort of say like an absolutism inflation is a good or a bad thing. In the short run it can suck, right? Like like I went to the grocery store and I found $12 peanut butter and I was like what? But like, that's, that's anecdotal at best. Right. Because like I said, my, I bought my house in 2017 and it hasn't doubled, but it's gone up hundreds of thousands of dollars. I live in New York and the $12 versus, I don't know, $7. It was fancy peanut butter. Uh, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't change my life. Me personally, if I'm, if I'm, like you said, if I've acquired an asset and it inflates in price along with everything else. I mean, it generally goes with, to me, the greatest measure of inflation, which is one that they, they capture, but they pull out of the calculation, which is, is gas, right? Like Mm -hmm. fuel price factors into everything that we do. It's the one that everybody feels regardless of wealth generally is that you go to the gas station And if you are driving an SUV, 
you get pissed because it is now 70 to a hundred dollars to fill up your car when it has been roughly, you know, 50 to $60 before this period. Yep. Yeah. That's definitely the one that people get the most upset about for sure. And I mean, and it has, it has like trickle down effects too, but here's the thing. Here's where I think people get upset about the, the, the thing that we all have to realize too, is, is that uh, information is now much easier. So, so when you talk about what happened in 1920 in, in post-World War I Germany, where they had, you know, a loaf of bread cost a gajillion dollars, right? Um, first of all, none of us were there. Second of all, that's a history book. Third of all, um, with globaliz- globalization and, and things like that, like that's a fear, but not a reality, right? It's, it's well, especially not here in the U.S. It's not going to happen here in the U.S. It might happen somewhere else, but it won't happen here. And I think it might happen in a place like Ukraine. Right. Right. right now. Right. A loaf right. of bread, right. like water diamond paradox, like could be expensive. Right. Um, if there's no other bread. But I think that kind of like irrational fear drives people to be like, oh, my God, inflation is this horrible thing. Uh, I don't I don't know. I think it's just sort of I think, it, again, I think it's reactionary to other things happening. So you have to ask yourself a two-pronged question. Is inflation not a result? I don't even think that matters. Is inflation happening when everything else is going wrong, right? The United States has strong natural resources. It has um, a, a good defense system. I mean, I, I mean we can debate the we can debate that at some point. But we can debate the price tag, a, right? But we can obviously see that our defense system is kicking some butt right now in Ukraine. We, can like we literally ourselves. handed it over to a country that had no weapons and they're beating right. the Russian military. That's how good our right. defense network is. <laughs> so we have a solid defense. Like, you know, we have strong technology. Um, like uh, we have a we have a, a an area of growth in, in our economy. People and our population is also increasing, which 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 you know, d- debate, you know, how that affects day-to-day life and the, 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 um, the planet as a whole, but in, in, in sort of economic terms, your population increasing is, is a good thing. So um, it's the only thing I, that correlates with econo- economic growth is population growth. It's the only correlation there is. Everyone right. tries to correlate other things and it's the only one that matters. <laughs> and the only, the one, only that one that has like a direct, direct relationship. So you know, is inflation a bad thing? Uh, it sucks in the short term, for sure. Um, it does, but look what it's accomplishing. I think, you know, people are talking, prices are high and it, it's it's hard for, you know, poor people and middle-class people to bear the prices. But look what's come out of this, which is we have a labor gap now in this country. For the first time ever, there are more jobs posted than there are unemployed people. And so what's happened is the price of labor has had to rise for the first time in 30 years. People are getting paid. And yeah. we've argued for a long time, like whether or not this should be a thing. And part of the thing that happens is when you pay people more money, things get more expensive. That's if it. you're going right. to pay people at McDonald's $15, $20 an hour, McDonald's is not going to sell you the double cheeseburger for a dollar anymore. And that's so, not a so, bad thing. People uh, think that no, that's a so bad thing, but it's not. <laughs> Here's the th- here's the other thing, and and this is my New York price talking. Um, I I can make dinner, and there's only two of us right now. Um, I can make dinner, and if it's a good dinner, like um, 
you know, has it, 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 it has all the trimmings or whatever of a, of, a, of a regular dinner with, you know, some meat, potatoes, salad, not just like macaroni and cheese. Okay. Make like an actual nutritious dinner that's complex. I can't do it for less than probably $12 and 50 cents all in. I can go to McDonald's and I did this on Wednesday with, or yesterday, no, Wednesday with my wife. Cause she really wanted to go. Uh, she loves McDonald's. That's like, that's like, that's like luxury meal for her. Um, so she wanted to go to McDonald's. So I was like, all right, fine. We have a rule, not more than once a week. Uh, and she, she gets more food there than I see her eat in like a day. Right. And I get what I want and it's $22. So, so there's two things to learn there. Number one, $22 for two people, uh, for, for having your meal prepared for you, I would argue is not that much. Now you're right. When we were kids, you could go to get the dollar menu and you could probably eat there for $5 a person. Um, and this is New York. I don't know what it's like in other places. I know that New York is always more expensive. But the $10 difference of me cooking, which takes hours of time, that doesn't even include the, the labor, if you would, versus $22 to, to basically pick it up on the way home from school. Uh, my wife's a teacher. Uh, it, it, it's a no-brainer trade if you're both working professionals. Like it's, it's an extremely cheap meal. Like ten dollars per person is not expensive. Oh yeah, I mean, look the this is something that I think would be really important for anyone who's listening that's under the age of thirty right now. Which is, until you turn thirty, it's really hard to understand just how valuable your time is, how much your bill, how much an hour is really worth to you, and so. I challenge anyone who listens to this that is younger. And if you're a consultant, you have a head start because you know what your company bills you out at. So you can kind of cheat and say, well, I bill out at 120 an hour because I'm a mid-level consultant and you know, my multiplier is a 2.2 multiplier. So it's roughly like uh, 57 bucks an hour as, as the base. And Factor that in when you start thinking about doing projects and doing things like pe- this is the trait people's like people will always say this to me because I'm a DIYer at home is you're doing these projects, Sean, because you don't want to pay for the labor. And I'm like, well, that's not necessarily true because I put value on passion. We can debate all the economic inputs for this, but like I enjoy doing things. And so my labor number is lower there. But for cooking, it definitely makes there are I really buy the the argument that if you're coming home from work and you're busy going out for dinner is a far more efficient proposal than trying to fire up the stove and cook a meal. And that's totally. with a guy, I mean, that's with a guy who's got a wife for a wife who's an attorney and two young kids. Like, and I love to cook. I think of myself as a big time cook and I still will pick up the phone and order something purely out of, you know, uh, efficiency sake, because I just don't have the time or the energy to whip up something of the same caliber that we could get for, you know, in a 35 minute delivery window now. Right. 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 Totally. No, totally agree. Totally agree. So, you know, the curve inverted. The other thing I would always argue is, is it's got to invert for more than a day. Right. I mean, we death cross. we, how many times have we death crossed in the last like three, three years, like technical indicator. And then, and then everything flips because I, I've learned this from, from a colleague when you, when you're working in technical in the technical indicator space. So 
So yield invert, yield inversion, I would argue is a technical indicator, not a fundamental in indicator. You're, you're watching a graph and deciding when, when, when it's time to buy and sell. Um, uh, you know, you, you, there's gotta be serious confirmation. Like you gotta have a week of it. You gotta have, you know, pot, you know, in this case, a negative trend. You, you, there's got, there's gotta be things that happen. Now these, these things don't, this um, yield curve, it probably will take some time to unwind that. Um, the bond market right now uh, is, is hectic to say the least. I and mean, when we talk about equity markets, um, uh, because the, it's so much more transparent, but bond markets right now are a mess. So yeah, there's probably going to be a few months. And, and this is the thing. This is what I, this is what I'm getting at though. Is it a, is it a leading indicator? No, I think, I think the leading indicators of this market plateauing slash resection started in August. You could start seeing it in August. You got stock market validation starting in November. January was a destructive month. IPOs have been in the in Q non-existent, Q1 basically non-existent. Right? Yep. Uh, you now have a yield curve, and like this is not the first thing. This is this is towards the end, in, in 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 this respect, I think. Yeah, I think you're right, Greg. And you know, the other big one is it's only a leading indicator, and it's one of many. So let's many. you know, yeah, for the engineers in the room or the process-driven people like myself. We like check boxes and you can go with, you can start with, there's a yield inversion. Okay. That's one. There are a dozen other factors that go into what we're looking at here, which is much more of, I think what I agree with you, Greg, which is a plateau. So how do you, how do you make, maybe we can move it this way now, which is if you were investing now, how do you make money in a market that's going to go sideways for with high volatility for let's call it a year for the next year? How are you sure. making trades and investments? Yeah. So, well, one, if you've got sol, well, here's what I would say. If you've got massive, if you've already been investing um, and you're in strong situations, let's call it the Microsofts and the Apples of the world, I probably just hold those. I mean, maybe, maybe you can, maybe we'll get into sort of some, some other, some short-term stuff with those, but if those are the bulk of your portfolio, I think those are those are solid places to be uh, still. I mean, uh, Amazon. I, I know Amazon a little bit more than than the other ones. Um, the like consensus uh, analyst price target for for Amazon right now, I think, is over four thousand. May have come down a little bit. It's trading at thirty two hundred right now, or thirty three hundred. Like that's a <laughs> That's a, I, and I think it's trading below all analyst estimates right now. I could be wrong. There could be one or two that are that are lower, but those those kinds of those kinds of companies for the next year, like you you may not make fifty percent, but you're not going to lose money. Um, so I I definitely would make sure that if that's where your portfolio is currently at, I I I'd listen to this for the 10, 20 percent, not not to actually build your entire portfolio around. Right. And we're um, not, we have some, we'll, we'll talk about some of the big swingers, right. That you can swing yeah. and do some big gains on, but generally I think you and I are very, I am just coming around to the Buffett way of approach, but I'm, you know, I know a lot about tech. My whole family is from tech. And so what I do is I try and target companies in tech that represent value. Yeah. 
yeah. some deep value plays that are out there. And I think Amazon, if you look at their their forward cash flow and the split coming up, you really have, and splits are funny. Splits used to not mean anything. Actually, splits used to make me really nervous because it, you're just offering more shares of the pie for no gain other than to try and raise equity. Well, now that the, with the advent of the retail investor as a cohort, when you split something down, people irrationally think that I can now afford this share. And so I'm going right. to buy more of it. And it just runs the right. price right back up, which is good for businesses who need to, who need to generate the equity. But at the same time, um, you know, it's, it's just a different way of looking at the market now with the splits. For sure. For sure. I, um, so anyways, how, how do you make money? I think one, you have tempered expectations. I think if you are smart in this market, you're not looking to make 50% like you may have been looking to make in 2020. Uh, you're looking to make 5%, 7%. Can, can you match the S&P? And that's really the, the benchmark question is, right. have, you been, have you been matching the S&P and how have you been doing it? If you haven't, you need to quit, your, quit what you're trying to do and get into the index funds and stop trying yeah. so hard because there is, yeah. a, there is an auto draft here. And people think it's boring and, you know, it's not any fun, but, you know, the auto draft in fantasy football tends to win. The auto draft in the market tends to win. If you're just buying, you know, VTI Vanguard total index, it's just kind of like taking the best player available through the algorithm on the ESPN fantasy football draft. Like it's not sexy, but it's simple. We we didn't talk about this beforehand, but Sean and I, we talk about we, stocks now because we're older, but in our early 20s, we'd have this conversation about fantasy football. I oh, mean, we, we built models. Nuts. We built, don't, don't, don't kid around here, Greg. We built Excel models. We were on the low code solution stuff way before low code solution was like a thing because we're both good with Excel. And so yeah. we look at players like commodities and, you know, Whatever that means to you, like, congratulations, you're offended. Welcome to the podcast. But the, uh, you know, we are really good about picking up players and then developing strategy, I think is the best one that we have. It's like people are like, oh, yeah, you take, you know, you take the best running back and you try and get the best running backs. And well, sometimes that works out. But like, look at the long term trends, which is generally speaking, the best running back every single year is completely different than the running back the year before. And so yeah. the more proven one that we've really relied on is the QB wide receiver combo, especially right. now with the advent of the new rules. Like you have rookies like Jamar Chase, Justin Jefferson coming in the league, just torching people because cornerbacks literally are not allowed to touch them with their hands at all, or it's a penalty. And yeah. No, I mean, I mean, I think we look at, again, conceptually very similar to how we would look at a stock as uh, how we would look at a, at a player. And, and to Sean's point, um, Sean, Sean, you were, I think it was when your first kid, maybe it was before your first kid, but Sean, you know, you, you do all these fantasy drafts in August and beginning of September. And uh, Sean would just be like, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to let the auto one go. And then this is like, this is like, I don't know. This is like against the, the, the mantra that is fantasy football. You get in a room and you do the, and Sean's like, whatever, just, 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 just draft me, just draft me the auto. I'll, I'll take it. I'll take, I'll take that. And then Sean does surprisingly well, because it's really not how you start. It's how you manage throughout the, the course of the season. And you got to get lucky a little bit, but Sean and I would, you know, we get first sometimes, but the way that the money was paid out, we got second and third quite a bit. 
I think, yeah, 90% of the time, one of us was in the money every time in the top two. And then 100% of the time, both of us are getting our money back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and that's, that's, that's kind of how we approach, it's kind of how we started to approach the stock market as well. There, there might be, there might be, you know, take a flyer, as we used to say, um, you know, manage your risk, but, but don't, but don't think you're smarter than everyone else. You're not. Nope. Um, and you like, it, keep it simple. Yeah, keep, keep it, it simple, simple, right? Like people will try and overthink it. And it's like, you know, if you keep it simple, your chances of screwing up are a little bit lower than if you try and elaborately plan out and future forecast you know, what a company or a football player is going to do that season. Right. Because, because you don't know. That's the you don't know. And there's so much unknown. Like the Black Swan event is literally like an ACL tear for a football player. You have no I'm idea sure. when it's going to happen. You know it's going to happen, but I you have no idea when it's going to happen. Or to who necessarily. I mean, like, God, remember when Arian Foster was just like the man? And then like he'd get he he'd put up like 30 whatever points, whatever in the leagues he put up like 30 points a game. And then week 80, he'd he'd have like whatever his knees, I think it was his knees or his groin. It was his groin that started yep. everything. And all of a sudden it's like, wait, now he's out. Now we're not sure if he's out. Now we and and the dude would end up like third in, in the league in points and have played like nine games. Well, okay, so we're gonna we're going down a rabbit hole here, which I really want to do with you because I just saw a great tweet. So, give me your most underrated football player of the 2000 to 2015 era, and I'm gonna go first because I'm going first. Years, 15 years, or 2000, okay. 2010, or maybe 2005, 2000, 2005 to 2015. 15. How about got it? Okay. Matt most Forte. underrated football player, like, like actual football player or like fantasy football player. What are we talking about? Uh, try and find a good Avenue for both, but I think maybe lean a little more towards fantasy, but mine is Matt Forte. Okay. Oh, I was going to say Matt Ryan. Oh, Matt Ryan's a good one too. Matt Forte though, Greg, Matt Forte was incredible. If you look back at his stat, he's like Marshall Falk 2.0. He just happened to play for the bears when they were the horrible and they yeah. just couldn't, he was all they had. He was all like, they had. No, it was I, I all think, they had. I think Matt Forte, funny enough, I haven't thought about this in a long time, but Matt Forte and Matt Ryan had the same thing. They'd score every game. Now, would they put up 50? No. But would Matt Ryan get two touchdowns and 250 yards and one pick or less? Yes. It was like a consistent scoring. Matt Forte would be like 18, 20, 25. Yeah, okay, running back sometimes get injured or for a half or whatever, and he'd throw up two or four just like everyone else would, but less so, and he'd show up and play every game. I, I'm I mean, on board with that. Yeah, I mean, let me give you these stats, Greg. 14,468 yards, 75 touchdowns from 2008 to 2017, so nine years. That's yeah. a crazy amount of yards. That dude is averaging over – 1400 yards a year combined yardage that's not that's an unheard of number yeah what's what, so then you look at like marshall falk right and marshall falk from 2000 2000 1999 to 2003 probably did something eerily similar in a lot less time but you're gonna but love then he this was, but then but then he, but then he but then he sucked like then he was no good anymore well, yeah, I mean, literally, Marshall Fall came into the league in 1994, played until 2005, so 11 years. 
So over 11 years, he had 19,154 yards and 136 touchdowns. So way more touchdowns than Forte. Uh, funny thing is, Marshall Falk won a Super Bowl. Greatest show on turf. Like he's part of he's part of the, one of the greatest offenses to ever take foot on, you know, foot on the thing. And Matt Forte played for the Bears. The Bears. Yeah. The Bears. No, the Bears with Rex about, Grossman. <laughs> think about this. Marshall Falk's going first in every draft. Matt Forte, now he's a top-tier running back, so he's probably still a high rounder, but he might be a third rounder. Yeah, it could be because you get you get those weirdos who are like, I'm taking Pat Mahomes, number three overall. And it's just right. like or or Ty, well. I don't know if I would take Tyreek Hill in the top 10 now. Dude, I think, I think, so everyone was shocked. This is, this is, this is another great like investing lesson when you're looking at this. When I heard the Chiefs traded him for like nine draft picks, I was like, the Chiefs won that trade. Oh, did they, oh, 100%, did they, dude. Did they lose the short term? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, Tyreek Hill's a beast, right? But you should never pay thirty million dollars for a wide receiver. It's just it's the, not mo- it's something... the most dependent position in football. Yep. Literally, literally look at Denver Broncos. Great example here. Jerry Judy is going to be the next great wide receiver, right? Who did the Broncos have at quarterback? Nobody. Well, sorry, Drew Locke and Teddy Bridgewater and Brett Ripien. So nobody, <laughs> nobody. I'm not afraid to say that. And so what happened to Jerry Judy? He sucked. But now. Russell Wilson, guess Russell Wilson's here. Guess who's now on the top 15 list of all the fucking of right. all the freaking NFL fantasy football charts now? Jerry right. Judy. And and he's I think calling 1200 yards and 10 touchdowns after he's averaged like 600 yards and two touchdowns, like touchdowns. literally doubling production by yeah. adding a quarterback. I I think one thing like just to look at the Tyree Kill thing, sometimes when you've got such huge gains, even if you believe in the company you have to sell. Right. I mean, like if you, if you were, if we were talking about this yesterday, if you bought something like Chevron, man, it's really hard not to sell that right now. Like it's really, really hard because it's just up so much. Does it continue to go up? Maybe, maybe, but you're going to feel like an idiot if you didn't get, get your 60% gains in six months. Chevron to me is very much like Matt Ryan here, right? Like, so mm-hmm. to be transparent, yes, I own some positions in Chevron. And so, but they are a very consistent company. They pay good yields. So they're quality. They are in an industry that's kind of in some turmoil right now. It's at the forefront because it's, you know, we need oil and gas flash to environmentalists. I'm an environmentalist. I believe in, you know, sustainability. And I think oil and gas is on the decline, but at the same time, like it's not going anywhere and it's not going anywhere for 10 years, probably. So like, invest in the American economy and invest in American companies because like we do it better here and we're not an authoritarian regime who like kills people who don't drill the oil correctly. I mean, yeah, we can no, go and on I, and on about that, but it it's one of those ones where it's like, you know, Atlanta sent Matt Ryan to the Colts because they're like, uh, we we're, you know, and it's a bad quarterback year. And yeah. so the, the timing of it was interesting, but they had their run he got cursed with the crazy comeback by Brady that no one's ever thought another black swan event that you never thought would happen. We saw it, but like, no, I shut that game off. I don't watch that. Most people, I'm a huge sports fan. I never watch the super bowl. I never watch it. I'll watch, I'll, I'll go to like a party here, but I'm not watching it by myself. And, uh, I left my party at halftime. I was like, okay, guys, this is fun, but I have work tomorrow. I'll see you later. And then I missed the greatest comeback. It's the greatest comeback in the history of sports, I think. I mean, literally in, in, his, in the history of football, probably. You couldn't name a better comeback than that. 
in a Super Bowl? No, no, you're 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 probably right. I mean, the, the greatest comeback before that was that like Colts or not Colts, Oilers Buffalo game in the '90s or whatever. Yeah, where Warren Moon brought them back. You're probably right. I think you're right. I don't think that's a debatable. I think it's the greatest comeback in the history of football. But back to the analogy here. So as someone who owns positions in Chevron right now, I'm looking at it like, well, what do I do with it? You know, do I sell it? Do I hold it? And we talked some strategy over, which is do you sell all of it and look for a pullback because oil is sliding now. I think we're going to see OPEC is opening up the reserves a little bit. The U.S. is the U.S. is trying to play like it's opening up the reserves, but really what they're doing is augmenting the use of oil by four percent per day for six months, and it's just like, okay, well, I would rather the military have access to that oil than you know, frankly, go to the American consumer just just in case the Chinese decide to pull the wool over our eyes and do something crazy in Taiwan. Like, just want to make sure we're ready, you know. But at the same time, I'm like. Maybe and something we talked about is kind of like a hybrid principle. A hybrid approach would be sell the sell the gains, don't sell the principal, because it does pay a really good yield, and so you yeah, get some you get some been. dividend potential out of it, which is good for you know acquiring some income to buy some other stuff. But um, I have to stay long for another month, another five weeks, and then I can you know avoid some heavy taxes. But then we'll we'll have a better strategy at that point because I think it's this. Tough. This is an interesting shot that I didn't think of if. And, and I, I think we, I don't know if we talked about this or not. And this is just how you have to think about markets. It's really ugly sometimes. I hope this happens. I hope you lose a little bit on this is what I'm going to say. If Ukraine and Russia come to a ceasefire, you probably, the price of oil probably drops and you probably see a short-term swing in Chevron. So you probably would have missed the high. Right. So I hope you missed the high. Me too. You know, so, so, so that's, that. you know, money's not everything. I hope you missed the high. Um, but we'll have looked back at the conversation we had yesterday and it was like, ah, I should have sold it. Right. And that's, that's what it's going to feel in the short run at least. Yeah. I hope, and I I think, hope that's what happens at least. Yeah. But you talked about Greg, like some of the, like a better example, like, you know, Tyreek Hill, right. I have a good Tyreek Hill example for you, which is I bought Tesla in 2020. Yeah. Early, early 2020. Now, <laughs> I've made it through the first split. Now they're talking about another split and they want to pay a dividend. And I'm up like, I want to say it's like 350%. I'd have to look. I don't even look at it anymore because I get too tempted to sell it when yeah. I see the returns I've had on it. Yeah. But then I'm like, well, now that I know more about technical analysis and I look what Tesla's doing, I'm like, eh. <laughs> like it's it's hard to like... I get it. Their price to vehicle is good. Like their sales, their price to sales is good. Like they're the, they're the dominant power in the EV market. Like the moat is there. And I understand that, but I also look at leadership and I like Elon Musk as a innovator. I think the dude is a moron when it comes to being a chief executive and makes me super nervous, but like, it's also one of the ones where it's like, I've run it up so high where it's now it's just like, it's, I could care less what it does. And I'm trying to be Warren Buffetty about it, which is just like, you buy it and hold it forever. Yeah. Even though, you know, Berkshire does a lot of trades and he doesn't want to admit that, but they, yeah, I was going to say, they move in and out of positions all the time. I was going to say, I I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I mean, there are things that he has held forever, but there are a lot of things he has not. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Seize candy and we can get into the value versus growth industry another time, but it's another one where we can just see, you know, what would you do, Greg? So you own, you put in a, 
you put in fifteen hundred dollars to Tesla in two thousand twenty. Let me get the let's see here. I'll pull, talk to me a bit, a little bit about philosophy of like selling a winner. Yeah. So so there's a couple of things. One thing Sean didn't do, which I always tell people to do: create a thesis when you bought Tesla. And and Sean's thesis at the time, actually, he had a thesis, which was like, I need to learn. This is exciting. People are other people are buying it, which is always actually a great a great thing. Um, like that's that sort of like fundamentals are nice unless everyone thinks one thing. You'll never fundamentals will never win. Price price will go up if everyone likes it. Anyways, so Sean Sean's like, oh, you know, Tesla. It's an interesting concept. It's it's technology. And man, it's really freaking popular on Reddit, right? I don't know if that was your thesis, but it should have been. That, that um, wasn't, but it, it factors in now. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so Sean got in early. This price thing has run up. What Sean didn't do, which he does now, is he had no price target. So now he's out, now he's out in no man's land. If, if your price targets hit, you should sell. So if, if, if you bought it at 200, I don't know what it was. Let's call it 200 bucks. And it's now 600 bucks. And, and, and your price target was 700, then you got to hold it. If it's, unless, unless it changes, unless there's some sort of like crazy black swan event, like Elon, Elon Musk dies or something. Right. But that hasn't happened. If his price target was 300 and he's holding it at 600, I would argue that Sean is now gambling. Um, I, that's just my view. I think that you set a target and you have got to be, you have got to uh, be ruthless when it comes to that target being met. So what does Sean do? I don't know because we didn't we didn't set up no one set a price target. Well, I, so I bought it when it was one forty two a share, Greg. Okay. It is now uh, almost eleven hundred a share. Yeah, you've almost ten extra year. Yeah, and so Peter Peter Lynch is always like, look for those those ten baggers. That's what you're looking for is a ten bagger. And now the question is. Do you hold it and hope that it becomes a 20 bagger or do you just hold it as a core position because you believe that like Tesla long-term is the, is the dominant player for the next, my portfolio tends to look out really six to 10 years. And so if I'm going to hold something, it's in the six to 10 year range. And it's going to be because it's going to continue to compound at above S and P growth numbers, or it's going to compound at, S&P growth numbers and kick off a cash dividend that puts it above the S&P growth number. Those are really my two metrics for holding. I mean, look, EV market is not going away, right? Right. You're getting more competition, but, um, you know, I don't, and I don't know how this plays because look, like if you bought Apple in 2000, like you'd have made an ungodly amount of money. And what I've told you, what I tell you right now to sell Apple, no, I would not. Yeah. Right. And the thing, like the thing is the EV That's market, the right? Yeah. And so it's, it's cars. It's cars. That's the problem though. Here's what I hate about it because we talk about history, right? History repeats itself. It's not always the same way, but this is like the 1950s. There were over 110 car manufacturers in the 1950s that were publicly traded. And the That's consolidation that. effect through history, Warren Buffett is famous for saying this, which is like, go back to the 1950s. You could not have picked a winner out of that group. Ford, which I kind of maybe. just maybe, right? Maybe Ford, maybe GM. Like there's some of the bigger ones like th- that you probably, if you were a betting man or woman or non-binary person, 
you would be able to say like, hedge my bet, go with the big one. And Tesla, it kind of is the same thing, right? You hedge your bet, you go with the big one. The problem that I have with that thesis is Tesla's cars are not good cars. Their software is their software is really good. Their battery is really good. Like they're they're winning the two of three categories that come with the electric car, which are battery and tech. Their car stuff, they're not a car company. So they have funny things like the handles open funny and pinch your finger off or it gets frozen shut. It rattles. There are things that rattle that just doesn't do normal car things very well. And now you have people like Ford who may have been making cars for a hundred years coming in with the Mach-E, which is being hailed as like the most quality EV to hit the market. Like you're going to have a showdown here between the cult of personality that is the Tesla investor versus the everyday car consumer that is the Ford, GM, Toyota, you know, traditional car buyer. And so So, how does that bear out in the next six to 10 years? When you say that though, I think of Apple again and Apple, they made a phone. Their computers sucked. Their computers still kind of suck. Their laptops are nice, but they have managed the like second or third highest revenue generation in the world off of a freaking phone. I mean, I mean, the, yeah, they, they, the iTunes and the, the, the ecosystem, the right. They built out the, the ecosystem. They did SAS yeah, before anyone else did SAS really. Sure. And it just, it's, it's sure. compounded heavily. And, but the phones are still like probably 80%. You yeah. Know? And that's why they're not going away because it's a cult, right? Like, Apple is a cult. That's the best way to describe it. And so the question to you and to everyone who's going to listen to this is, is Tesla the same kind of cult following? Will there always be a Tesla? And I think there is too, because that's Elon Musk. You're in, you're investing in Tesla right now. And people are like, well, it does so much more than just cars, right? Like it does solar city, Starlink, uh, SpaceX. Like there are valid businesses in there that I'm like, I'm salivating over the concept of them splitting them out and letting me invest in just just Starlink, yeah. right? Like yeah. Tesla, right. I'm like, oh, yeah, your your stuff is kind of funky, and you know, I can I've been in so long that it's fine. But like, if I when the split happens, I actually don't know if I'm going to buy anymore. Yeah, I, I don't interest. know. If I, like I if mean, they still so if they split it down, say they go they go ten to one, they'll drop it to 110 a share. Right, probably yeah. a logical number for them. <laughs> Are you going to buy some, Greg? No, I, I I feel like I I feel like the the biggest miss I've ever had is that I loved Amazon and I never bought it because I didn't have any money. But yeah, um, I, I do not feel that way about Tesla. But I again, I'm not always right with stocks. I think you were right about stock. I think you were right about Tesla, and so I think you know the the other problem is is that it's a. <laughs> It's already like the third largest company in the world. Right? Well, that was going to be my next question is, well, how much bigger can it get, right? Like you're talking about a company that is supposed to be in growth mode, but has reached the third largest market cap relative yep. to every other company in the world. Like it's not, yep. are, is it going to 10X from here? Like, the, like technically that, that would, like in my mind, it would be impossible to do that. The thing that I like about like Tesla, here's the thing, okay? You, you talk about FANG stocks, right? Like to me, we're in the technology play. The, 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 the FANG zone is, everyone's got to know that, right? You got your Facebook, which is now Meta, um, Apple, um, Netflix, which that one always blew my mind. And I'm going to, that's my point. And Google, 
right? Which is not Alphabet, which so I don't I don't know Forget what the new Amazon. thing is. Mana. Um, anyways, um, uh, and then you got Microsoft too, which they they're left out of this zone, but they're they're there. All of those companies, except for Netflix, have diversified revenue streams and things that you have to buy over and over, right? Yep. Except for Netflix. Netflix is this thing where it's like fifteen bucks a month, and like I don't want to watch it. I just cut it for a few weeks or a month or a year or never, right? Or you, so or Netflix you just borrow the password. This complicated <laughs> thing. Tesla is the same thing, right? They have they have actual things that people buy. They right. have cars. They they have um, uh, the the internet things, the Starlink things. They have solar panels, right? That's what solar or whatever is. Like these are city, actual. Yeah things that people buy, which means those are actual things people have to replace, right? Right, and Phones so it gives you a, a proven model of commerce that has been existing yes. since the history of humanity, basically. And, and I say the this- and again, sale, The purchase and trade-in of, of goods. <laughs> and I say this with saying like, I'm an Amazon, I love Amazon still as a stock. Uh, uh, they buy and they're, they're a marketplace, right? They sell a lot of crap. But where I actually like about Amazon is the fact that they like own the internet. Yeah, like the AWS Amazon web side. services. Yeah, like Amazon web services is like sixty percent of of all internet traffic or something crazy like that, right? Like they they basically just own 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 a part of the internet, and uh, that will never go away, or at least it's not going away in the next 20, 30 years. So I love that. Same, and I think if you know people are looking for like the Web three stuff. I don't know. Greg, you and I will do a whole episode where we talk crypto and web three and we'll talk about that. But if you're in the short term or looking for like the safest web three play that has ever existed is Amazon. Yeah. Agreed. No, you buy, you're buying Amazon for AWS, like the, the prime stuff, like blue origin, all of this stuff. I don't really buy that, frankly, like Amazon is trying to do the Costco thing, which is they just charge you a monthly fee and you get some benefits from it. The problem yeah. is, is that Amazon has a real image problem in that Costco directly ties their monthly fee to, or their yearly fee to how much they pay and how they treat their workers. Whereas right. Amazon has to hide how they treat their workers. Totally. <laughs> so totally. it's, 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 it's totally. just an interesting model, but I'm like, I'm with you, Greg, that the internet's not going anywhere and AWS is only going to secure more data centers and control more share of the internet space uh, in terms of hosting it. I think people are like, NVIDIA is entering into this. And I'm like, NVIDIA makes chips. They and make chips. They, they very make, valuable. They make, very valuable. The new car, the new oil will be chips probably, but yeah. like yeah. they make chips and they're moving into data centers. And I'm like, I see a deal coming where AWS is like, dear NVIDIA, we will buy your data centers from yeah. you. A new yeah. merger between NVIDIA and Amazon. That won't be a, a merger, right? Because Amazon can't buy NVIDIA. Otherwise, the world and antitrust people will freak out again. Right. But they'll do a partnership. And then we'll see everybody run up that way. And, and that's the best way to, you know, in my opinion, back to the original statement, which is to secure your Web3 spot by, by Amazon. And don't fuck yeah, around the, with it. Don't fuck around with the cryptos. Like, just buy Amazon. Yeah. Tesla, Tesla though, I, I, if, if, if I were... I wouldn't say don't buy it. I know this is going to be, this is going to be one of these like massive hedges that people love to do. Like, Oh, you know, I'm i I'm, I'm socially liberal, but I'm fiscally conservative. That's like the biggest garbage thing on the planet. Like pick please, or, or be something completely different, but, but that, that, that doesn't work. Um, that's not, that doesn't exist. Um, that's like, that's like, I'm a Jedi. 
I'm a peacekeeper, but I lead the uh, the, the clones to battle. No, like you can't be both, right? Um, all, all right, so, Barris Offy, come on now. <laughs> but uh, but uh, no, I, I I personally would not hold Tesla um, because I think I think it's too expensive. However, if you were building a portfolio right now, uh, it'd be on my top ten list, yeah. and and therefore it would be in my portfolio. Yeah. Uh, so Greg's showing you guys his hedge, which is he wouldn't buy Tesla. And so here's my hedge. And this is a sports analogy. And I, I am famous in the city of Denver for saying this, which is I would have traded Nikola Jokic uh, three years ago. Oh, interesting. You know, three why? years, ago. three years ago before he was the MVP. So I've had to eat a lot of crow since then, but yeah. he had extreme value in this time. And he, yeah. And I'll probably, he'll, yeah, he'll be the first two backers since, MJ, I think, was the last one to win back-to-back. Nash, I think. Or Steph Curry. Oh, yeah. Steph Curry may have won back-to-back, but Steve Nash definitely did. But at the same time, like, I have a different outlook on sports, which is, especially as someone from Colorado, I have the Rockies who don't do anything. They literally are the – the goal is to be mediocre and draw 40,000 people to the best bar in the city. They don't care about winning. And then like, 22 games in a row to make it into the playoffs. (laughs) One time, right? One time. And that's their black swan event. They, I literally think they don't want that to happen because then the expectation is that they'll field a winning team. <laughs> but the Nuggets are kind of the same thing for me, which is, are we going to ever win a championship? It's a real debate. Like Jokic is in his prime right now. you got a bona fide superstar. Dame Willard was on the market, you know, at the trade deadline. Do you go out and get him? No, we didn't. So I'm like, Give it another year. If you're not going to go for the win, blow it up. Ship him out and get I, as much as you can for him, especially because he's a big man. He did the durability. It's a guards league now. Like, you know, it's it's kind of like you would do it for – you'd look at someone like a, if you were to ship off a big-time tech company right now, who would it be? Maybe like Adobe would be one or Oracle, one of those two, like a solid performer, has a good yield, has decent cash flow. And you're like, yeah, uh, you've been underperforming a little bit of late, like the last five years and everyone else is innovating and coming into your space. So I'm going to sell you and pick up a new high flying guard play in EV like Tesla. So, so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you you're wrong. I mean, the the market stuff was good. But the analysis was good, but the, the basketball is wrong. Nikola Jokic, I would keep, would have sold Michael Porter Jr. Oh, okay. So first of all, both things can be true. I would get, I would have never paid Michael Porter Jr. Yeah. This is my problem. I never would have paid him. People are like, he's the next Kevin Durant. He's he's no. not. He's like a no, big man. He's good. He's, stroke he's, he's, yeah. he's, is he that good, Greg? He's. I don't think he's, he can create off his the dribble. Problem. And I, I don't think he has any confidence. This, he has the lowest confidence that I've ever seen in a kid who's supposed to be a top 10 scorer in the league. His, like his problem? He looks like Jason Tatum's little brother who is coming to the party because his brother is the guy who's at the party. The problem that I have, though, Sean, is, is that like Nikola Jokic, he's like hard to – he would be hard to replace, and you can build a team around him. Yeah. And with Jamal Murray, the two of them are unbelievably good. What you need it, what they what they need is scoring, like like a like a shooter, like a someone who can create their own shot and can make. And that's what Michael Porter Jr. does. Michael Porter Jr. gets injured all the time. And he's always coming back from injury. So 
he gets back into it and then he's really good. And then he's, then he gets injured again. And then he's not, then he's no good. Right. Yeah. So in my mind, they should have not paid him. Who's the guy that went up going to Detroit? Um, Jeremy Grant. They should have paid Jeremy Grant because he actually plays defense. Yeah. And they should have waited. And if they just scored Dame Lillard, that's that's a moment where like you can buy scoring, right? Well, and Dame you can buy J.R. Smiths of the world. You can buy the like the people who just have irrational and it's and crazy enough in basketball now, like irrational scores are all over the place. Kyle Corver. Look at Kyle Korver. Yeah. Kyle Korver was a man before his time, but he, the dude is like 40 years old and is still one of the best spot-up three-point shooters in the league. Right. And he'll have a job until he can't hit threes anymore. No exactly. one cares about his Wrong. defense. No. But he, so, but he's a great equalizer. So so with Nikola Jokic, who plays okay defense when he wants to, he the thing that he can do is, that I've always been impressed with him, is even and he's gotten in better shape, like looks been better shape, but somehow the dude can play 40 minutes. And that's Yeah, that's his stamina – well, and that's the thing is like people think that I want to trade him because he's a bad player. I'm like, no, you don't understand. I believe he's a great player that I want to trade yeah. to get as many assets as I can for that's him. Because, because we yeah. got well, if we're trying to win a championship and you haven't done it in call it five year window, right? So we, we're in year two, year three of his five year window to win a championship. And so in five well, years, are you going to trade him after the fifth year? I'm a big believer in the Bill Belichick model, which is you trade him after the fourth year fourth and year, let him have his right. MVP season somewhere else, and then he'll fall off a cliff, i.e. Richard Seymour. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree, I agree with you. And, again, with the Nuggets, um, they're probably not going to win a championship. Um, in fact, I would say that this year, probably more than any other, is probably their best shot, and they don't have a shot. Because LeBron's hurt. And at the end of his career, the Nets are a mess. Um, if they, yeah, we'll if do they a whole had, episode on the Eastern Conference. Kyrie had gotten his vaccination done, and I like the gym. I actually like the Harden uh, Simmons trade, but yeah. Simmons is hurt. Like if that had all happened and everyone would have been healthy and playing, the Nets would be the odds-on favorite, and it wouldn't even be close. Like they are the you you forget the Milwaukee Bucks won last year because Kevin Durant's toe is one inch longer than it needs to be. Like he hit a three pointer as time expired, but his toe was on the line in Game right. Seven that tied the game. They would have lost that game if that would have been, you know, one inch backwards and the shot would have still gone in. And that team had nobody. Like he was playing with the subs. He was playing. It was Kevin Durant and the second team because everyone was injured and they still almost won. So if they could actually get guys on the floor, the Nets will win the next three out of the next five championships. So they'll the, get the year it for the, the year for the Nuggets was the bubble year. That was the year to do true, it. They, had, they, had, they had the team exciting. to do it, and they had the team but to they do it. They, didn't into, they ran into the Lakers. Yep. And so I just don't know if it'll ever happen while LeBron is with the Lakers. And and we'll let that so. one lie. So we, we're going to move into the last segment here, which is – why you're listening to this podcast, which is not for the fun banter back and forth about sports stocks and, you know, reminiscing about living in the, in the hall with a bunch of LBGTQ people and then showering next to the girls and pooping next to the girls in the same bathroom because it was gender neutral bathrooms, which was like super progressive because now Ted Cruz and Rick DeSantis are like, that is the whole reason we cannot have gender neutral bathrooms is I don't want, I don't want my female cohorts to hear me pooping next to them. 
Let's be honest, folks. Plus, it's all about it was that. awkward for the first two months. Let's be real. Like, oh, like, absolutely. Like you could use a bathroom somewhere else, you did, but but you get used to it. Yeah. But okay, so the last segment here is really why everyone's listening, which is our offering to you, the audience, is this. So Greg is going to take all his Wall Street knowledge. We're going to take my kind of unique question asking data mindset, and we're going to teach you guys how to swing trade. And we're not going to teach you how to do options. And we're not going to teach you how to find penny stocks that can go up and down, you know, 30, 40% in a day. I mean, that would be really nice. And we might move into that. But what we're going to do is show you how to target quality companies. So that way, if the earnings don't go the way you think they will, that you can hold them long term and still have a good investment to help mitigate the risk that you're doing. And Greg and I are each going to put up five grand of our own money. And we're going to show you exactly how we're going to do this and walk you through the steps to show just one, how to do it, but how powerful the compound effect can be that if you can swing it, you know, 10, 20%, you do that once, you do it twice, do it three times, what happens to your portfolio? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, so we'll, def I don't know, if, do we have any ideas for today? We have one idea. Uh, so we have a list going that we'll put, we're going to get it up on a, like a, a website and all this kind of stuff, but we do have a, a list of the swing trades that we are targeting. We haven't really evaluated them yet, but we're targeting companies like Google, companies like Amazon. I think we'll really be focused on, um, the split companies coming up here because we know that the splits are going to run. Like if Tesla's going to split, Greg, we're going to swing trade Tesla. For sure. Sorry. No, I agree. I'm sorry. With you're going to, you don't have to hold it. No, no, I'll, no, I actually agree with that. I agree with that. So, so we can, we can, we can use Google as an example, I think, because I think it's still in swings, swing trade zone. So, so I actually did this trade uh, back in January. So if you recall back in January, the stock market took a nosedive and part of swing trading, part of it, not all of it, part of it sometimes is playing market. Timing's not the right word, but, but understanding the market. Swing trading is easier to do um, or, or has, is easier to buy, I would say, uh, when the market is going down because markets go down, but markets usually don't stay down. So if you see a stock that's down, not because of their fundamentals, but because the stock market's down, you, you have your sort of first box checked. And when I say market, I don't I mean the whole market with a company like Google, sure, but tech specifically has been beaten way down. So that starts to be kind of like the zone that we start to look for swing trade options, right? Things that are sort of mispriced relative or absolutely. Um, so, so Google was one that hit my screen back in January. They had an earnings... Uh, I think their earnings date was, was January, I'm sorry, February 3rd, I think it was, I, I someone could check this, but, um, I invested in, in Google, uh, in, um, uh, on a Wednesday, I think it was, I think it was like the 19th of January and, and you're never going to completely time this. Cause if I had timed it perfectly, I'd have bought it like three days later, cause the market was in free fall. Um, but what I realized and what I thought is that the, the, the earnings day was going to be a good day. I mean, like it was just completely oversold. Google, there's, I mean, they had done great things in Q4 that they had press released on. There was nothing that said to, the, said to anybody that they were going to lose revenue, right? It's not like they were going to miss, miss estimates. 
I mean, we can, we'll walk through this in more detail. It'll be more interesting to do it on a forward looking when we actually have to make a buy sell decision. But that was the thesis. The, um, the stock was, I don't know, I think I bought it at 2,700. It fell all the way to 2,500, something like that. And then earnings hit. Oh, here's, a, here's some interesting stuff. Yep. So earnings hit and it went up from 2,600 to 3,000. Uh, 15 minutes after the market. Part of swing trading is understanding that you have to watch a stock into the aftermarket um, because, because companies release earnings either before or after, usually after, but sometimes before. Um, and so you have to be willing to you know, sit around until 5.30, 6 o'clock uh, and, and watch a stock because it'll, it'll bounce. And, uh, and, then, and then it may, as Google did, uh, it may come back to earth before trading the next morning. So, and, and most, most platforms nowadays allow you to trade in the aftermarket. So um, pretty easy to execute. Um, but that was the thesis. Um, Google's an interesting one because I think we could swing trade it again. It has fallen back to 2,600 for God knows what reason. 2,790 um, to be precise. 2,790? It forgot, it doesn't make any sense. It should be a $3,500 stock. That's, that's near its all time high. So that's another one. 34.52. That's another one. If a stock like a Google or an Amazon for no apparent reason is off their all-time high, you got yourself a good candidate to get in and either swing trade it, which means sort of wait wait for the catalyst and sell. Or if the catalyst doesn't come and, and, and for some reason it's, it's unclear why, hold it another quarter. Just because you get, just because you didn't make it this quarter doesn't mean you can't make it next quarter, and tech will come back. Yeah, tech will. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm not, I don't want to say by the end of the year. I don't want to make like a. a, a I hate making these things because who knows? There's a lot to happen. But in my mind, within the next two years, most tech companies that are off their all-time highs will set significantly higher all-time highs in the next two years. Yep, and that's why we're doing this now. Is you know we're we're kind of in the the bottom-ish area of the correction for tech, especially. And Greg and I know enough about tech companies to help you navigate this area to find really the value picks, ones that you can be sure that if you hold them long-term, the business is going to be there, that they are likely going to compound. You know, investing is a game of probability. And then you have to play the game of possibility on top of that. But we like to play the game of probability here. So it's a probability of how well Google is going to perform. And, you know, we use data. This is a teaser to some of the tools that we have developed together, just some basic spreadsheet tools to help you identify how to find the right swing trade for you. And this doesn't even include like little tidbits. Like we have a lot of really quality, you know, value companies here, JP Morgan, BP, Bank of America. Um, these are our companies that if you hold them long-term, they do something fun for you, which is if you put enough money into them, they have a yield. And so they'll pay you a dividend quarterly to hold their yeah. stocks for them. And so that, that can offset some of the, uh, you know, some of the long-term holding that you might have to do if the swing goes wrong. But I think, um, you know, this list is the preliminary one. Greg and I haven't evaluated it yet. So Greg's got to go through and put his rankings in here. And then we'll kind of do our own little calculation for kind of what our, what our entry point may be. We'll look at some technical charts that way, but also what our price target is. You know, Greg has been really good about talking about how you need to structure your trade, not only how to get in, but you really need to focus on how you're going to get out of it. And so the good thing about these trades is 
if you really like the stock and you want to swing trade it, but then you feel that you want to just hold it for an investment, we're giving you stocks that you can invest in on top of trade on. And so, right. and, um, and this, this, this concept is really built for someone. So we, we'll, we'll, we'll we're going to start at the top because as Sean said, these are not, this, it, this is not the podcast for you. If you like those, those ads on YouTube where it's like, I, I made eight gajillion percent in an options trade over the last three months. And I'll teach you how to do it. No, that's not what this is. This is, this is actual, this is actual, uh, conceptual, real fundamental um, uh, analysis uh, and, and, and with real companies. We'll, 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 we can apply this to, and we probably will, to smaller companies, but then other things start to come into play like liquidity, um, uh, 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 insider purchases, that it gets a lot more complicated and, you're, and, and, and factors that you, you have no control over uh, you, you start to come into play. I mean, it's also for $5,000 each, we can play any of these stocks and it won't move the needle. We get into right. some $100 million stock. Sean and I together, if we bought $1,000, we could move the thing 20 cents by ourselves uh, at the wrong time. And I was... think people, people really don't understand that, Greg. I think a lot of people yeah. don't understand the mechanisms in mid and small cap and how just how little amount of money can enter and, and really wreak havoc on the way the share price is going, especially for the ill-informed penny trader, basically. That's what you're trying yeah, to be as sure. a penny no, trader. I, mean, I, I own a stock which IPO'd and it moved six cents last night on 36 cents. It's, 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 it's low dollar stock. So it's, a, it's like a couple percent move on 37 shares. 37, that's nothing. That's, that, was, that was like 50 bucks for somebody. So you have to be really careful when you start to move down. You have to be a lot more savvy and, and understand and, and watch a lot closer because movements are, are much more hectic. So we pick, we're picking the big ones because, heck, you could put in a million bucks. It ain't and it moving, wouldn't move. It ain't moving the market. On these. Yeah. And we're going to teach you guys how to research. That's the bigger one is so that, you know, and we're not selling you a course. This is the new mantra of all the YouTubers and all these gurus or options traders and, you know, 12 vaccine in a day and making $40,000. Greg and I are going to do this with you guys. We're going to put our own money into the game and just show you how to do this so that you can apply the lessons and so that you can learn how to make some returns on your investments and then how to really evaluate businesses, I think is the biggest one. That's especially what I'm here to learn from Greg is really how to, how do you look at a company like JP Morgan, best bank in the world, but that's all that I really know about it. What else, how do we look at it? What do we look for to know that it's a quality company and that it's a good candidate for both investing and trading on? Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, all right, think- let's move to the closing and conclusion here, Greg. Last words for us or any last insights? Uh, no, I just, I'm so glad. Sean and I talked about doing this for years at this point. And uh, I'm so glad that we got this first one done. Yeah, and we did it. You know, this is a good amount of time that we spent here for a first one. I think we've done, we've stayed relatively on topic. We have some good analogies going. We have some good humor of me, you know, cussing and making a fool of myself, but that always goes a long way. <laughs> And then we're saying some controversial things, which I welcome the trolls. Bring it on. You know, keyboard warriors. I, I'm a keyboard warrior myself. So we can go uh, stroke to stroke. 
I'll have to, I'm going to, I think I'll learn firsthand what a troll, how it feels to be trolled. I, I, I'm not a troll big by social media Troll by like an eight-year-old. It'll be great. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a big social media guy. So, so I might be a little fragile at the beginning. <laughs> it's okay. I'll protect, I'll protect your honor. Okay. Lady, Lady Gregory. Thanks. But right. yeah, no, thanks for listening, everyone. Greg, thanks for doing this. Um, yeah, and we're going to do more of these and get them posted. And uh, once we get critical mass, like they'll, they'll start coming out more frequently, but we'll get a website up and running, share all our content and then show everybody kind of how we're going to position to do this and teach you guys through it. And then the goal is to eventually get it to, I think, where we get you through it. You guys start feeding us your trade ideas and we'll evaluate them and tell you whether or not, yeah, good choice, bad choice. Like that's outside the box. We never thought about that one. We'll go research that for you for free and just kind of have like an open dialogue here. The goal is to create a community where we talk about things openly. Like we're not gurus. We're just like everybody else here. And we have a little bit of knowledge to share and you guys do too. So it's going to be a two-way street once we get everything up and up and running. Great. All right. All right. Well, we'll see everybody later and uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thanks guys. Thanks, Sean. Yep.